Where the devil have you been? Cousin Alexis is not having a good day. Mina does her best not to let her enjoyment show as she settles back into her leather armchair in the House of Whispers. Have you the slightest idea what it takes to negotiate the single most important wedding of the decade without a damn bride? Not to mention the fact that we're precisely no further forward in our investigation into the unseen. And as if that weren't enough, all hell has broken loose in the underworld. Every two-bit faction of murderers, gangsters, mercenaries and spies seem to be at each other's throats. Not to mention the covert wings of the houses, and House Montessario is caught square in the middle. The streets are running red, and only House Tereth seems to be weathering the storm with any semblance of credibility, which is doing nothing for our bargaining position, let me assure you. If the whole thing weren't so chaotic, I'd almost think this were a deliberate power grab. Goodness, Mina says, feigning sympathy. It's almost as if leaving these twilight paths behind us and bringing House Montessario into the light were the naive daydream of a narcissistic neophyte. Alexis bridles at the insult and at hearing his own words thrown back at him, but he swallows his anger. Instead, he forces a smile, bows his head and says, Touché, dearest cousin, but fear not, all is not lost. Events may be moving faster than I had anticipated, but we only need weather the storm a few days longer. Now that you have deigned to join us, preparations for your betrothal can begin in earnest. Which reminds me. Alexis unhooks a speaking trumpet attached to a flexible leather tube that disappears into the floor from the side of his polished oak desk. Digby, would you show our guest in, please? The door opens and a tall, immaculately dressed man enters. There's no denying it, Mina absently notices. He really is rather good-looking. There's nothing forced about Alexis's smile now. Philomena, allow me to introduce you to your future husband, the Duke Tristan Parsifal Tereth. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. Mina and Cadmus escaped the underpipes following a tremendous battle with Uma Jukti and her pipe runners. But their escape is not without condition. The leader of the machine cult, known as the Voice of the Machine, has demanded that Mina provide them with entry into the palace of House Tereth. Once inside, he and his cultists intend to use their explosives to slaughter hundreds during the glittering wedding due to take place there, 
little realising that the very agent they have sent to secure them access is the bride herself. So, our first glimpse of Duke Tarath, and our first glimpse also of what the spider meant when she said it was time to go to war. It sounds like the city's quite a dangerous place right now. The Duke's arrival was the result of an altered scene. I'd planned to have Mina go to visit Alexis to discuss the wedding, and the most obvious alteration seemed to me that her future husband would show up. A bit more on him in a moment. I asked three fate questions in that scene that informed me that Alexis was having to deal with the consequences of the Shadow War and that he wasn't coping too well. I also got an exceptional no when I asked if progress had been made investigating the unseen. And when I asked what that meant, I was told debase attention, which I interpreted to mean that whoever Alexis has sent on their trail has either ended up dead, duplicated or disappeared. But even an angry Alexis has limits as to what he'll share, and so I decided that he'd probably keep details of that to himself. I also asked for some details about the Shadow War, and I was told triumph opulence. Seeing as we just had opulence refer to Palace Tereth, I figured this meant that while pretty much everyone else was losing, Tereth was actually coming out of this rather well. An interesting nugget of information, I wonder what it means, if anything. Before we move on to the next scene, I'm going to need to find out a little bit more about the Duke, and so it's time to crack out my trusty canoe personality generator. This time, as I really know nothing about him at all, I'm going to go a bit old school. I'm going to roll each attribute in turn and go with what I get. Off we go. Conscientiousness. Four. Agreeableness. Five. Neuroticism. One. Openness. One. And extroversion. Two. Wow. He's not quite who I was expecting. He's genuinely kind. He's affectionate and decent, as well as being very well organised and structured. A little shy, perhaps, though he hides it well. But not really the social animal that his role would have him be. However, he has zero self-awareness and zero imagination. In D&D terms, I'd say he's high charisma, but low wisdom and perhaps low intelligence. By the look of it, there's not a lot going on under the hood here. Let's turn to Une to get some insights into his motivations. My three roles give me Advocate Distress, Achieve the Church, and Obtain Intelligence. Wonderful. Given that we've already established that he's not the sharpest tool in the box, I love the fact that we get Obtain Intelligence as one of our results. But I think I'm going to tackle that in a slightly different direction from the obvious literal interpretation. Okay. After a little thinking, I have a fair idea about what motivates Tristan. He's keen to use his power for good, trying to tackle the social ills that beleaguer the city. He's also clearly religious, which is perhaps where his altruism stems from. Perhaps he wants to forge closer ties between his house and one of the religious factions of the city. Well, given that his final motivation is obtain intelligence, I think that probably best fits Droom the Colossus about whom the Seekers of Knowledge have formed. 
though the Duke may be lacking in smarts of his own, he does seem to be bright enough to realise that the wisdom of others is a powerful tool. Maybe he's not so dumb, after all. I think the Duke's appearance has rather thrown Mina, so I'm upping the chaos factor here to three. Your Grace, Mina says, rising. Oh, call me Tristan, please, the young man smiles, waving at her to sit, and taking a seat himself. What a stroke of good luck meeting you here, uh, Miss Montessario? Mina. Mina, yes. I am delighted to find you here. Look, why you look so different from the last time I saw you? Do you remember? Mina does, though the memory makes her cringe. It had been at some function or other years ago. The children had been left to play in the gardens while the adults played their own games of power, influence and attraction. Mina had been young, but not so young that Tristan, three years her elder, athletic and handsome already, had not stirred something in her. No, she admits to herself, it was nothing quite that elegant. Within two minutes of meeting him, she had developed the most enormous crush and had spent the rest of the evening blindly following him on his various adventures, doe-eyed and dreamy. She has to prevent herself from physically squirming with embarrassment. If Tristan recalls any of this, or notices her present discomfort, he shows no sign of it, though Alexis seems to have developed a thoroughly punchable smirk. Instead, Tristan leans forward, earnest and animated. Alexis's approach could not have come at a better time, Nina. This wedding has the potential to change everything. The ills that plague this city are the result of all the factionalism and infighting that has gone on between the great houses for generations. The plight of the poor, the rampant crime, all of it. The dominar has kept the houses at one another's throats, with no one house able to establish the upper hand. But with this alliance, all that will change. With the resources of House Tereth and Montessario combined, we shall be the preeminent power in Kairos. We shall dictate the agenda, and, with Droom's blessing, we will finally change things for the better. Mina is rather taken aback by this outpouring of enthusiasm. It's not at all what she'd expected, though in truth she's not sure what she'd expected. The Duke seems entirely guileless, as much an open book as anyone she has ever met. A starker contrast with her slippery cousin Alexis she cannot imagine. And his desire for improvement is admirable, endearing even. But there's also something in what he says, and the way that he says it, that sets alarm bells ringing. In her experience, power is rarely held for long by the transparent or the kind-hearted. She wonders just to what extent this man is being manipulated by the agendas of other, less scrupulous actors. It goes without saying that her cousin is playing his own game. Who else, she wonders, is doing the same? But, of course, now is not the time to voice such concerns. She hesitates a moment, unsure how best to answer, which Tristan misinterprets. Oh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I I've been so caught up in all my plans that I've lost all sight of basic decorum. He smiles again, self-deprecatingly this time, and spreads his hands apologetically. My comportment and etiquette tutors would be having fits if they could see me now. An opportunity to share my vision for the city and every one of their endless, tedious lessons is at once discarded and ignored. 
I do hope that once we're married, you'll be able to help me with that. Uh, that is, if we're married, uh, that is, if you'll have me, uh, he glances, flustered at Alexis, and then turns back to Mina. Oh, dear, I think I'm making a bit of a hash of this. Mina laughs, and leaning forward, places a reassuring hand on his arm. You're doing just fine, Tristan. It's refreshing to speak to someone who says what they think. She flicks a sideways glance at Alexis, which she's fairly sure that Tristan misses. Listen, if there's suitable etiquette for this situation, then I don't know it either. And, more importantly, I don't care to. Please, tell me more about your plans for the city. They sound fascinating. Having mentioned them in the recent bonus episode, I decided to play with some new toys in this scene. Une, the Universal NPC Emulator by Zach Best, has an NPC Association Emulator that contains a response module for yes-no questions and a discussion module for when you have no idea what the NPC will talk about. And in this scene, I really had no idea what Tristan had on his mind. Small talk about the seating plans? Who knew? Well, Une knew. That's who. It was a very simple process to build this scene. Before I got to the actual discussion, I asked Mythic if they'd met before, and based on what we already knew, I made up the little story about young Mina having a bit of a crush. Given that this is all my PC's backstory, I think I've got free reign here, and I can write pretty much anything that sits right in the context of the rest of the established fiction. And in this case, I felt it would potentially help to just add a little bit of connection and spice into their adult life. Next, for conversation. What did Tristan want to talk about? Using the discussion module, I started by selecting a starting demeanour for Tristan from the following options. Scheming, insane, friendly, hostile, inquisitive, knowing, mysterious and prejudiced. From all the personality and motivation context previously established, I decided that Friendly was the most likely from that list. From there, I rolled a d10 for his bearing, and I got a 5, Happiness. And then finally, I rolled a d100 on the NPC Focus table and got 89, Power. So, a friendly Tristan spoke to Mina happily about Power. Going back to his motivations, it was clear to me what this meant in context, and given his personality, he was going to be open in the way that he expressed himself, and the rest pretty much wrote itself. Here's my plan to fix the city, I'm so excited. I wrote until that played itself out, and then, rather than have Mina pick up the conversational baton, I tossed it back to Tristan, with another Une discussion topic. Again, I started with friendly, then rolled support, and then skills. Tristan wanted support with skills. Again, this made sense to me in the context, and it was easy enough to write some dialogue that demonstrated a vulnerable side to Tristan, that he was able to articulate, if a little bit clumsily. And in so doing, that naturally made him seem just a little bit more appealing, a bit more approachable, and so it opened up a connection between him and Mina that hadn't been there before. I mentioned in the last chapter about blind spots, those character flaws that we ourselves are completely oblivious to, and I think we just saw one of Mina's. She gave Alexis the stink eye for being duplicitous and manipulative, but then that's exactly what she went on to do with Tristan not two seconds later. If you were a cynic, 
you might easily make the case that Tell Me About Your Plans was really code for Let Me Dig Into Your Naive Daydreams and Find Out Who's Manipulating You. A way for Mina to identify the power behind the throne, as it were. A quick note on how that scene came together. I noticed this time that I alternated back and forth between the mythic and une questions and then my writing of the narrative over the course of that scene. Now, again, as I mentioned in response to a question recently in the bonus episode, that's not my standard approach. Usually I'll churn out all the mechanics first in just a minute or two, and then, perhaps after a bit of time to digest and process those responses, I'll sit down and write the scene out in full. And I think perhaps the reason I didn't do that here was because we were dealing with dialogue, and with a largely unknown NPC. Each Une prompt gave me a starting point, but I needed to write the dialogue out in full to see where it went. Only when I got to the end of one person's speech was I in a position to ask my oracles another question. Usually, when playing a solo RPG, I make these transitions between playstyle without consciously thinking about them, just switching back and forth as the game dictates. And so it's quite useful to have people's questions make me stop and think a little bit about my process and about how it works in different circumstances. I think Mina was pretty much in control of that scene, and so I'm going to move the chaos factor down to two. The next two days pass in a blur. Mina visits the Tereth Palace several times and endures a seemingly endless series of rehearsals. Seriously, it's just I do. I'm not likely to forget that in a hurry, she protests, but to little avail. It's all she can do to have the assigned phalanx of House Montessario flunkies run unwitting interference for her as she tries to get on with the actual job at hand, saving all of their lives. The tedium of it does give her time to reflect, though. Her questioning of Tristan hadn't needed to be subtle. The Duke had been delighted to have someone to share his plans with, but it was notable that the moment she had probed a little bit deeper, asking who his trusted advisers were, Alexis had immediately stepped in and rerouted the conversation. And her cousin had been very careful to create things from there on in, limiting any chance Mina might have had to dig further. Indeed, she hasn't seen the Duke since. All of which leads her to believe that the Duke is very much a pawn in someone else's game. Alexis is certainly a player, but she very much doubts he's the only one. The fact that Alexis is up to no good comes as no surprise to her. The fact that he is breathing is proof enough of that. What worries her is that she's not at all sure that Tristan is wrong. Perhaps an alliance of their houses really is the best way to restore stability to the city. If anything, it's worse than your cousin suggested, Mina. I spoke with a friend at the monastery this morning, and although the attack has killed far too many of our... Uh, of their number, it has done little to limit the devotants' reach into the seats of power. The news they bring back is deeply disturbing. The city is at war with itself in all but name. There has long been a clandestine power struggle between the houses, as you well know, but it has remained hidden and controlled. Even between the various factions of the underworld, an uneasy truce has been held for a number of years. But with the open assault on House Montessario, and the attack on the Ancran Monastery, it is as though all the dominoes are now beginning to fall one after another. 
Conflicts that were hidden are now being pursued openly. House is attacking House, though of course with plausible deniability. Alliances are forming and breaking daily as they jockey for survival and control. And it is worse among the gangs. There are running street battles, Mina, that the Bluecoats seem powerless to prevent. Even the Holy Orders are not exempt, I'm sorry to say. Tensions have always existed between us, but now I fear they are boiling over into something even more confrontational. Kairos is tearing itself apart. And if it's this bad now, Mina reflects, just imagine what will happen if the cult of the machine succeeds in their mad bid to blow up Tereth Palace on the night of the wedding. The more she considers the risks, the more she questions her plan. Should she do as Cadmus suggested and evolve the Bluecoats? Or at least extend her circle of trust to Reth's security or the House of Whispers? Hell, at this stage, she'd even consider allying with the Visitor if he'd show his face. At least on the face of it, he is intent on shutting down the cult and their supply of explosives, and the covert group that he claims to represent could be just what she needs to gain an edge over her foes. But there is no sign of the elusive spy, and she has no way that she can think of to contact him. And as to the others, well, she's never much trusted the Bluecoats to walk and chew gum at the same time, let alone crack the most dangerous terrorist network the city has ever seen. She stands, lost in thought, gazing out of an open window of the rookery. Across Kairos, plumes of smoke, a half-dozen at least, angle up in the late autumn breeze. Evidence, if any were needed, of the violence that grips her city. And then, from the direction of the bridge district, comes an explosion so powerful she can feel it right through the soles of her boots, even at this great distance. A black and orange ball of smoke and fire rises into the air. Cadmus dashes to her side. Was that... Mina nods, sickened to her stomach. Yes, the cult of the great machine. Again. Another attack, this time on one of the bridges, I'm pretty sure. I dread to think who or what they've targeted this time. Damn it, Cadmus, I feel so powerless. I'm sure that attack is at least in part a reminder to me of the task that I've been set. Am I doing the right thing here? Could I be putting everyone at even greater risk than they already face? Cadmus places a hand on her shoulder. As to the risk, only time will tell. But I've known you long enough to know that whatever you decide, you'll be doing the right thing, Mina. Your plan is sound. Certainly I can think of none better. In a hand of bad options, it is the least bad card to play. Have faith in yourself. Mina places her own hand on his, grateful for his unwavering support, but still plagued by doubts. Together, they stand and watch the smoke rise into the cool twilight air for a long, long time. Well, thanks a bunch, Cadmus. Here's me trying to point out Mina's flaws and how she needs to recognise them in order to overcome them, and you're busy playing the enabler. Oh, you're so clever, Mina, I'm sure nothing will go wrong with your genius plan. How's she ever going to learn with Cadmus blowing smoke up her ass all the time? Okay, that's a bit unfair. Well, in fact, it's very unfair. There are several types of friends that can have a negative impact on us and our personal growth. Energy trainers, victims, naysayers, know-it-alls and gossips. 
that's just for starters. But Cadmus is quite clearly none of those. He's supportive, he's considerate, he's caring, and on occasion he's wise. So why is he not pointing out the blind spot in Mina's thinking? Why is he not recognising and helping her identify her flaw? Well, the counsellor Rose Driscoll says that making a new friend is a lot like falling in love. Quote, We expose ourselves to the person, a little bit of our inner self, and reveal what's beneath the surface of our outer shell, which makes us vulnerable. Also, like falling in love, when we make a new friend, we go through a honeymoon period where we can see no fault in them, until something inevitably happens when we realise they aren't perfect. End quote. Now, I think that's what's happening here with Cadmus. He is in that honeymoon period. Everything that Mina has done so far has succeeded, more or less. She's rescued him, twice, taken out the pipe runners, and survived the cultists. From his perspective, she's pretty much perfect. And the bond that has grown between them is down to another aspect of friendship. Rose goes on to explain that we're drawn to people who we recognise as part of ourselves. Quote, If that part that we recognise is a part of our healthy and balanced self, then the friendship has potential to be a positive one. However, sometimes we're drawn to someone who has a side to them that we also have, but it's one that's not healthy. When we find a friend that we connect with on an unhealthy level, that's when we fall into a pattern where we might actually be reenacting something from our childhood when the foundations of our future were mapped out. We could be unconsciously drawn to a person we find difficult because we relate to an aspect of ourselves that we find difficult. Maybe we share a similar background, like having a difficult mother or a divorce or a violent father, for example, and maybe our friend gets that and understands our experiences. We're drawn to that because we all like to understand and to be understood. Similarly, Finding a friend that connects us to a positive aspect of ourselves can also be hugely uplifting for our mental health. Like finding a friend who brings out the adventurous or silly side of us. Focusing on finding friends who bring out these best parts of us helps us see the value that we can bring to another person and ultimately helps us get much-needed connections with others. End quote. So, is the friendship that Cadmus feels for Mina and which she feels for him healthy or unhealthy? Well, I think they're both pretty healthy, but time will tell. Right, sorry, little bit of a detour there. Let's get back on track. You may have noticed I did a bit of a jump cut with this scene, rather than continuing the conversation with Tristan. And that brings up a couple of points I just want to touch on. When is the right time to end a scene? And when should we transition from the end of one scene to the start of a new one, to a new location or time. Let's look at the first of those. Often, it's obvious where a scene ends. One state has ended, and it's time for another. But in case it's not obvious, here are some additional thoughts. When framing scenes, it can be very helpful to name them in advance. So, for example, in this episode, before I started a scene, or drew a card to see if that scene was altered in any way, I named it. Scene 49 was Return to the House of Whispers, Scene 50 was Meeting the Duke, and Scene 51 was Gathering Information. Just enough to get a feel for the scene focus, and then having that definition in place, that can help me both with altering the scene when Mythic says so, 
and with determining when the scene has reached an obvious conclusion. Have I returned to the House of Whispers, and did something interesting happen in the process? End scene. Did I meet the Duke? You get the idea. The other consideration is scene length. For this podcast, I aim to write at least a page for each scene, and unless there's a strong reason in the fiction, I try not to write much more or much less. That's a good length to introduce the players, to have something interesting happen, and then perhaps set up the next scene without overstaying the welcome. The other question is when to jump away or to fast forward to a new place or time, There can be a temptation to take every step of a journey, remaining zoomed in all the time. For this last scene, I could have detailed the end of the conversation with the Duke, and then the journey from the House of Whispers, home, and then perhaps to the palace and back again. But where's the fun in that? Lots of schlepping back and forth? Focus on what matters most as a gaming principle means sometimes jumping ahead to the next interesting thing even, in some cases, jumping straight into the middle of a battle with no idea of how you got there, placing yourself in media res and then working your way backwards, perhaps with flashbacks, to uncover how you got yourself into this mess. Right, I've banged on enough and I've badly broken my own one-page rule in the process, so if you're interested to see how that last scene was constructed, please take a look in the show notes. For now, chaos goes up to three, and I'll see you next time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information story will continue in the next episode of Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening. <laughs>